Okay, picture this. You're about to go on a date with someone you've been conversing with for weeks. You know what they look like. You know what they do for a living. You might even know what they like to do in bed. And yet, this will be the first time you ever meet in real life. You haven't yet heard their voice. You don't know if they have any obnoxious facial tics or unfortunate body odors. Despite this lack of information, in your imagination, you've built them into a full, real, wonderful person. Someone you could spend hours talking to without getting bored. Someone you could take into your bed over and over again without getting bored. Someone you could live with and not want to kill. Someone you could bring to Thanksgiving dinner. Someone you could propose to. Someone you could grow old with. If all that seems overly optimistic, well, it is. Previous experience suggests that none of this will come to pass. And yet, the heart, or at least that part of the brain that we refer to as the heart, can't help but hope. It's a magic and slightly masochistic form of mental gymnastics that anyone who's gone on an internet date will be familiar with, balancing the mundane reality of every disappointing date in the past with the bright and shiny possibility of a happy future with this, well, stranger. It's also exhausting, both the build-up and the letdown, but even still, some people do it weekly, or even more often than that. I've been a terrible dater for most of my life, sometimes only going on a small handful of dates in a year. Except for this one week in the spring of 2011, when I went on five first dates in one week. My name is Charlie Beckerman, and for those seven days, I was a serial dater. When Sarah Koenig and This American Life launched their serial podcast last fall, I think everyone was surprised by how successful it was, Koenig and company included. Not because it wasn't done well, but because no one else was doing anything quite like it. People argued that it had to do with the hookiness of the story, or the charm of the protagonist, or even the injustice of the criminal justice system. But I think it appealed to something more primal within us, the serialization of life. This is something that we all do, whether consciously or not. We organize the sequence of events in our life into chapters, episodes, and yes, series. We do this because we have to. Without that kind of organization, we'd never be able to keep track of all the different things that have happened to us. It had always felt a little backwards to me that the most common format we use to tell the story of someone's life in current popular culture is a movie. We don't often think of our lives as something to be summarized into a two-hour capsule, and yet this seems to be the default approach for Hollywood when it comes to telling the story of a real person's life. The reason I bring all of this up is because once I realized that Koenig had popularized an almost entirely new genre, that is, the long-form serialized audio nonfiction narrative, I found it kind of puzzling that it hadn't become more widespread before. How wasn't there already a podcast named Serial? I suspect that part of it has to do with the fact that, in this country anyway, the word serial was mostly used to talk about serial killers, especially when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s. Back then, the term was confusing. I can't be alone amongst people my age who thought that there was a murderer on the loose who really liked his Captain Crunch. 
Also, I'll only take a second to point out the irony of how the first season of Serial was about an accused murderer who was not only not a serial killer, but might not have been a killer at all. The topic for my podcast stems from another common phrase using the word serial, though it was coined more recently, serial dating. This is not to be confused with serial monogamy, a concept that, to me anyway, was more common in the late 90s, something that belongs to Rob Gordon's top five lists in High Fidelity. Desert Island, all-time top five most memorable breakups in chronological order are as follows. Allison Ashmore, Penny Hardwick, Jackie Alden, Charlie Nicholson, and Sarah Kendrew. Those were the ones that really hurt. I don't mean to diminish Rob's pain there, but not all of us have five relationships whose endings could be qualified as breakups. Granted, for many of my friends in New York, their 20s were like that. The Daniel years, the Lance years, the Victoria years. They would often have brief pauses in between. I heard the phrase, I just need to be single for a while, uttered by more than a few of them. It was like they were taking a break from the swimming pool. All the while, I was the kid that couldn't go in because I never learned to stay afloat. They'd be single for a few weeks, maybe a month, before diving back in, and I'd have to make sure that I didn't call their new significant other by the wrong name. If their dating histories are like brightly highlighted textbook pages, the long stretches of neon color demarcating the chapters of their lives by boyfriends or girlfriends, my own looks more like sporadic pencil notes in the margin of the text. The phrase dating history itself is a bit of a stretch. It's more like a history of some dates. I am 31 years old, and to this moment, I have never continuously dated one person for longer than eight weeks. I say this mostly as a disclaimer for anyone who might be confused about what this podcast is going to be about. I suppose on some level, it's not even about a real serial dater. The consensus of the internet seems to be that serial dating is something dishonorable, and that it's something that a man or woman chooses to be. In a Glamour magazine article titled Six Signs He's a Serial Dater, the signs include he's a bachelor for life, his eyes gloss over when you talk about yourself or your interests, and he makes empty promises that he can't keep. To me, this just sounds like a definition of an asshole. By the way, the best item on the list is not, as it might seem at first glance, he charms the panties off of you, literally, but... Work is everything to him. He says things like, I'm going to be huge, and gotta make that money. I've been on some bad dates, but I've never heard any man, gay or straight, say anything so eye-bogglingly self-involved. So, ladies, if you are ever on a date with someone who says this, please do the rest of humanity a favor and slap him. Hard. All of this is by way of saying that this podcast is not a masterclass on dating. Here's what it is. In 2011, without meaning to, I ended up going on five first dates in one week. A little bit of context. I was working at Marvel Comics as an assistant editor, but yearning to go chase my dreams of being a writer. I had applied to 14 MFA programs and had gotten into two, the University of Arizona in Tucson and Florida State University in Tallahassee. I was in, I'm leaving New York mode, and my therapist, Barbara, who I'd been seeing for about six months, had been encouraging me to stop holding back, retreating, and apologizing. 
I can't remember exactly how she put it, and she would have never used a cliche like this, but she wanted me to be more me. Riding the high of getting into not one but two graduate programs, and being able to kiss the working world goodbye, at least for a little while, I just started saying yes to everything. And everyone. Now, I have to disabuse you of another illusion. Whatever rom-com meet-cute scenarios you're picturing, you can stop. I met all of these guys on the internet. In fact, of all the guys I've ever gone on dates with, I've met the vast majority online. Over the years, I've rationalized this by explaining that I don't particularly enjoy going out to clubs or that most of the time I hang out with women, but what it really comes down to is this. Fear. Going up to someone at a bar or club or, God forbid, out in the regular world and hitting on them is, like, terrifying to me. What if they're already seeing someone? What if they aren't even gay? Online dating provides all the surety of knowing that the person I'm approaching is at least somewhat interested in dating, while shielding me from the immediate and disgrace-inducing shame that comes from on-the-spot in-person rejection. Don't worry, therapist Barbara pointed this out as something I should work on. There's a small irony somewhere in here that I'd really much prefer to meet someone in real life. At least, you know, in most circumstances. Sure, we met on OkCupid is quickly becoming passé and therefore socially palatable, but we haven't quite reached the point where you tell your grandmother that you and your gay husband-to-be met on Grindr. But beyond avoiding awkwardness, the meet-cute story has taken on a kind of mythological importance. For the single... The potential for a good meet-cute can theoretically cure years of celibacy, as if we were holding out the whole time for this perfect story. My perfect story goes a little something like this. I'm sitting on the subway and notice a beautiful stranger sitting across from me. I keep averting my gaze to avoid staring, but our eyes keep meeting. At first, we both look away quickly, as if we've touched a hot burner on a stove, but then we look at each other for a second, and then a couple of seconds. And then we both smile abashedly. Then, the person sitting next to me gets up at their stop, and the stranger comes and sits next to me and says, Hello, I am Nicolas. Turns out he's French. And you are? His B-plus English puts us both at ease, excusing his forwardness and giving me permission to also be forward. From here, the possibilities are many, but just off the top of my head. We start talking about our favorite Wes Anderson movies and both miss our stops. Me by accident, Nicolas on purpose, though I don't learn this until years later, the rascal. And we end up at Coney Island, where we decide to get a drink at an adorable divey sports bar before strolling along the boardwalk, sharing cotton candy and a soft serve, and then a kiss in the shadow of the cyclone. Too much? And then catching the local back towards the city, his arm around me, or mine around him, this is a partnership of equals while we talk about our favorite font typefaces, or maybe we just write in silence. Letting him doze off, he's had a long day as a pediatrician or civil rights lawyer or producer for Sesame Street, or maybe he lets me doze off, the wakeful one gently rousing the other with just enough time for one more tender kiss before we have to part. On the 1 to 10 scale of meeting people, this is a 50, and therefore is sort of useless for our purposes here. Not simply because it's a fantasy, but because it requires the universe to do all the work for me, placing the beautiful Nicolas right in front of me and then having him make the first move. That's rarely how anything works, but especially in dating, especially in online dating. 
relationships take hard work might be one of the better truisms of our time, but it's important to point out that it applies to all relationships, even nascent ones. Suffice it to say, I did not go into all of these dates with an open mind. I did not treat all of these men fairly or kindly. Sometimes I was kind of a bitch. But for the chronically single and adventurously dating, being nice can be just as much of a weakness as a strength. Which brings us to date number one. I've nicknamed this guy Bowtie, because what he really had going for him was an affinity for bow ties. At least, he had two. I can only imagine a closet full of them hanging from a special bow tie rack like brightly colored fish. This brings me to one of the first major problems with online dating. So much of the decision of whether or not to click on this guy or that guy's profile comes down to their appearance. And not just his personal appearance, though that factors into it, but really just the quality of the picture, the moment it was taken. How's the lighting? Are they smiling? Is it forced or natural? I still have Bowtie's picture saved in an email I sent to a friend, and looking at it now, I can see that it's well taken, possibly professional. There's no shine on his face, and either he has the skin of a Clearasil after model, or the photo's been retouched. The picture is of him and a girl, but the girl's been cropped out. He's wearing a crisp blue button-up shirt and a cool steel bow tie with yellow polka dots. His hair is slicked back like a soda jerk, and a subtle pair of specks are the only thing between the camera and his kind, dark, curious eyes. The excised girl's hair and brow have made it into the picture, and he's sort of leaning toward her, but since she's not there, it's like he's shoved her aside having seen someone better. In fact, it feels a bit like he's leaning toward me. On his face is a slight smile that says, Oh, I didn't know you'd be here. It was over three weeks between when I first contacted Bowtie and when he agreed to go on a date. I'll get more into the ongoing struggle of getting guys met online to show up in reality on a later podcast, but suffice it to say, my messages were returned slowly, almost lethargically. He wasn't boring or anything. In fact, he'd just gotten back from a trip to Prague, which was a city I both knew and loved. But instead of it being a shared interest that sparked off a long conversation about the old-world romantic vibe of the city, with its bridges and castles and moody lighting, it felt more like we discovered we knew someone in common who he didn't particularly like. Despite this, I somehow browbeat him into meeting up, though there were still many hurdles to overcome. Coming up with a time and place that worked with his schedule was nearly impossible, especially since he didn't offer any suggestions of his own, and he kept repeating over and over how little money he had. Fortunately, I was notoriously cheap. I still am, I guess. And was happy to suggest a half dozen different dates that would cost under 20 bucks. And if you were planning on going on a date in New York City for less than that, well, you were using some sort of weird magic I'm not familiar with. We'd actually made tentative plans for the Friday before, but he'd gone radio silent in the days leading up to it, so I was as surprised as anyone when he resurfaced and proposed a late Wednesday meetup. Surprise gave way to exasperation when he sent me a message the morning of our date, Hey yo, I have a major headache slash cough today, so I'm not going to be very fun to talk to. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want to reschedule? <sighs> no.
I arrived at the restaurant about five minutes early. We'd agreed on Posto, a nice but not too nice artisanal pizza restaurant that had a solid beer selection. Bowtie was already there, sitting on a stoop next door, a classy leather briefcase leaning against his calf, and looking like he'd been waiting for a while. He didn't say anything about it, though, and our greeting, a handshake standard for first mandates, was perfunctory. To his credit, he looked exactly like his picture. He was wearing a plaid bow tie, which if anything was a step up from the polka dots. His white shirt looked just as crisp, his hair and his shoes sported the same glossy sheen. The only thing missing from the photo was the facial expression, that barely there sense of excitement and exhilaration. It was clear almost immediately that he didn't particularly want to be there. Posto is small, and even though it was late, the place was packed. I'm not exactly a small person, and I managed to jostle several people with my bag and jacket on my way up to the host stand. The wait was 30 minutes, and when I related this back to Bowtie, his face withered. There seemed to be some crisis of indecision on his part. I was about to ask him whether he wanted to stay and wait, thinking of other places we could go in the area, but I flashed back to what it had been like to plan the date in the first place, i.e. me suggesting places to go and him rejecting them. I decided to try and bottom line it for him. What do you want more? I asked. Food or booze? I don't know. I should mention, by the way, that he still looked great, and I was still hoping that we might get to make out at some point. I guess I could use a drink. I made the mistake of asking him if there were any bars in the neighborhood that he liked. We weren't far from Union Square, and I figured that if he was on some familiar turf, his mood might improve. But all he did was shrug and say, I don't know downtown very well. For the record, the only other person I know who refers to Union Square as downtown is my 90-year-old grandmother, who grew up in the Bronx and rarely goes below 32nd Street. I might as well have smuggled Bowtie into Pyongyang and then asked him where he'd like to eat. I picked a bar nearby called Revival on 15th Street. It's a split-level dive bar. As you enter, the steps on the right lead down to the cramped bar, and the steps on the left lead up to a lounge area with couches. We grabbed our drinks, a mixed drink for him and a draft beer for me, and headed upstairs so I could begin the Sisyphean task of having a conversation with this guy. What'd you get to drink? Vodka tonic. You? I got a Newcastle. Ugh. I don't drink anything except for vodka. I just get sick. Sometimes I do shots of vodka. Yeah, vodka and I do not get along. If I do a shot, I usually go for tequila. No. Gross. For those of you keeping score at home, that's three exchanges before he shuts down the conversation completely. What are my options at this point? You're totally right. I am disgusting. I also double dip my chips and sometimes eat my own boogers. You know what? I'll switch to vodka. What have I been thinking? Actually, I've built up a tolerance to tequila after my brief stint with the Zapatistas. If you think tequila is gross, wait till you see dysentery. Tequila's the Russian one, right? Instead, I moved on to a lower-risk, higher-yield topic of conversation, the things we like. There's a John Ruskin quote that I got from a gays-only dating website that's so long defunct I can't even remember what it's called, that goes, tell me what you like and I'll tell you who you are. 
It's not correct on, say, a spiritual level, but is absolutely the fastest way to learn about someone on a first date. Bowtie's favorite movie was the recent Kira Knightley production of Pride and Prejudice, which, who could fault a gay for that? I thought the poetry was the food of love. Of a fine stout love, it may. But if it is only a vague inclination, I'm convinced one poor sonnet will kill it stone dead. So what do you recommend to encourage affection? Dancing. Even if one's partner is barely tolerable. But when I asked him about what he liked to read, he looked a bit self-conscious, for the first time all night, and said... Pride and Prejudice sequel novels? Oh, I didn't know Jane Austen wrote any sequels to Pride and Prejudice. She didn't. Jane Austen is one of my English major shames. I assume that every English major has them, those authors and books that we just never got around to reading. For me, it's Jane Austen and James Joyce. I took an informal poll of a few English graduate students of their own English major shames. We had two counts of Finnegan's Wake, two counts of Moby Dick, two counts of Hemingway, and one count of Faulkner. Upon reflection, one of my poll subjects, a poet named Vince, observed astutely that everyone has holes. My brief excitement that Bowtie and I might be able to talk about literature was quickly dampened by the fact that this was one part of the canon I just didn't know that well. I tried to summon the scraps of what I remembered from the 15-hour BBC adaptation of the book my parents forced me to watch when I was 10 years old, though the internet insists that this adaptation is a tight six hours, but I'm almost certain that's wrong. The books that Bowtie like to read are conjectures into what I'm forced to refer to as the Pride and Prejudice universe, or the PPU. While there's no exact figure on how many of these books have been written, Goodreads.com lists over 180 published titles that fall into the subgenre. These include the plaintive Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife and Loving Mr. Darcy, the more subtle The Cumberland Plateau and The Ladies of Longbourn, and the farther afield Fitzwilliam Darcy Rockstar and Mr. Darcy Vampire. Vampire, of course, is spelled with a Y. It became clear pretty quickly that these books weren't just the majority of what Bowtie read, it was all he read, and therefore my lack of Jane Austen knowledge became even more problematic. I brought up my favorite line from the BBC adaptation, where Mrs. Bennet tells Mr. Bennet to tell Elizabeth that if she doesn't marry What's-His-Face, then she, Mama, will never see her, Liz, again. And then Papa Bennet tells her, Liz, that if she does marry What's-His-Face, then he, Papa, will never see her, Liz, again. Your mother insists on you marrying Mr. Collins. Yes, I shall never see her again. Lizzie, from this day onward, you must be a stranger to one of your parents. when your father is dead. Your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins, and I will never see you again if you do. Mr. Bennett. I was granted a momentary reprieve from my English major shame because Bowtie couldn't remember Mr. Collins' name either, and so we turned to the internet on my phone to track down a massive extended character chart of the PPU. He started telling me about a few of his favorite storylines, and I realized that for the first time all night, he, Bowtie, seemed to be having a good time. I finished my beer and offered to get him another drink, but he turned me down, demonstrating his still half-full glass. I headed down to the bar alone, ordered another beer, and cashed out. When the bartender made a mistake and overcharged my card, instead of trying to void the charge, he offered me a shot of whatever I wanted. On impulse, I ordered tequila. 
Bowtie wasn't there to see me order it or do the shot, but it still felt like a moment of defiance, of triumph. I asked the bartender if he could give me something a little better than well, and he poured me a shot of Patron, providing me with a fresh lime and a tired-looking salt shaker. It went down the hatch. Whether due to the tequila or the more obscure and ludicrous-sounding corners of the Darcy Bennett family tree that Bowtie told me about when I returned upstairs, I started losing the thread of the conversation. It was past 12 on a school night, and it seemed fairly clear to me that, despite my hopes, there would be no making out ahead of us that evening, so my motivation plummeted. I finished my beer, Bowtie's drink had been dry for a while, but he didn't want another, and we stepped outside. It was the end of March, so the weather hadn't exactly gotten nice yet, but it hadn't snowed in a couple of weeks and had been steadily in the 40s at night, which was better than it had been. The short walk to the train was unremarkable, except for the fact that maybe we'd reached a kind of accord, agreeing that it just wasn't a good fit. I can't for the life of me remember what we talked about, but maybe in the area of dating memories, no news is good news. So there we were in the Union Square subway station, about to say goodbye, both of us engaging in the mental dance that happens at the end of a date, where each person tries to measure the other's intentions. It's the first definitive feedback that either party gets from a date. I actually didn't have that great of a time, but still, beyond all reason, I wanted to make out with him, or at least get a kiss. I was about to lean forward declaratively when I felt him pat my arm twice. This is what I was getting by way of goodbyes, a double pat on the upper arm. To put it in context, on the scale of goodbyes, this is slightly better than someone not touching you at all and saying, let's do this again sometime, and slightly worse than a handshake. You can view the full chart on the website. The next morning, I described the goodbye to my friend, Anna, this way. It wasn't a malicious pat on the arm. It was like, I don't know what I'm doing. After a normal date, that is normal for me, which means the only one that month, I might spend hours dissecting the significance of the double pat, but this was more or less the extent of my ruminations. Thinking back on it now, though, I feel like I missed something. I've gone back and watched the Keir Knightley Pride and Prejudice, and I worry that I somehow misinterpreted Bowtie's aloofness. Maybe he was just being Mr. Darcy-like, coming off as bored and tired, and the intrigue was something that was buried so deep down within him that he barely knew it was there until he was led to a passionate outburst. Maybe all he required was patience, and a little understanding. Even here, though, by casting Bowtie as Darcy, I've fallen into the trap of casting myself as Elizabeth, which I figure is what everyone does. More likely he's cast himself as Elizabeth, and I can only imagine I make for a poor Darcy. Certainly our exchanges didn't ignite within me the burning flame that Lizzie lights for Darcy, definitely not something that would lead to rain-soaked declarations of love. And compared to a meet-cute as fine and fraught as the one that Jane Austen had devised, Bowtie and I didn't stand a chance. But it doesn't matter. By the next morning, I was already mentally stowing my bags and making sure my tray table was in the up-and-locked position. That's right, the very next night, I have a date with an airline pilot. Next time on Serial Dater. Serial Dater is written, produced, and edited by me, 
Special thanks to Anna Marquardt, Fatih Ahmed, Julia Weatherell, Diane Roberts, and everyone in her Fall 2013 article and essay workshop. Extra special thanks to the Petticoat Lane Writers Residency and the Michael and Karen Beckerman Fund for aspiring podcasters. Bowtie played by Adam Enright. Music written and performed by Prom Date. You can listen to and buy their album, Portraits, at www.promdatemusic.com. For more information, please visit our website, www.serialdaterpodcast.com. Serial Dater Podcast.